The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. All right. Are we ready? All right. Talk to me. <laughs> the mighty Kavat. That's the guy. That's the guy you remember. <laughs> of course, I remember. It's one of my favorite parts of that of the uh, very earliest Saturday Night Lives. It was great. Yeah, um, it really broke my heart when it came to an end. Yep. Oh well. Anyway, so I can't decide if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I'm not sure. Hope for the medication challenged. Uh, FAA lifting ban on a family of antidepressants allowing people medicals if they are taking these meds. Now, I don't know how to express this exactly. Is this for people who have been taking these meds all along and not reporting it? Or is this for people... Are we suddenly going to have a bunch of pilots who have been needing this stuff all along and now are taking them? Yes. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes is the quick answer. And the third thing is that people have been lying on their med forms. Right. And, and so, so they're going to stop lying now. Well, there's a grace period for them to stop lying and qualify legally and uh, – continue to uh, fly and take the, the meds that are on the approved list. And uh, uh, we know it happens. We know it goes on. Uh, and we also know that after years of experience that people with mild depression, which can be caused by chemical imbalance rather than, you know, angst over how your mother treated you, uh, is controllable on this stuff, and it, uh, you know, for a lot of people, it has no side effects whatsoever, except it helps them get over the chemical imbalance. Um, I don't know what to say here. I put this on this point in the list because I thought it was a goofy story, and you guys are taking it very seriously. Or you think this is a good thing? Well, I, I don't actually, know. I do think it's a good. Thing. I, I think it's a net plus. Yeah, um, I think um, for one thing, too much was was made of the FAA's announcement. Uh, this was on national news. And I don't know that it deserved that kind of of, of uh, coverage, per se. It, 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 of course, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite things, it, it depends. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we talking about um, ATPs with first-class medicals uh, in, serving in, in scheduled operations? Are we talking about the guy uh, wants to take his daughter up for a glider ride some sunny the afternoon um i don't know there, there needs to be some proportionality here somewhere um and i'm you know I'm, I'm very pleased that they've taken this step it's it's a lot of people will be able to get back in the saddle and or get in the saddle legally whereas they might not have been able to uh before uh and that's all for the good um Clearly, it was is still going to need you know there, there still had, needs to be some controls. Are there other classes of medication that ought to be uh, similarly uh, regulated or deregulated, as the case may be? Without my PDR handy, 
Yeah. Uh, I, that's not one for me to, to offer any kind of qualified answer or opinion. There are other classes of antidepressants out there. We know that. Sure. Uh, and some of them, uh, some of them do the same kind of work for the same kind of, uh, of, of, uh, of conditions. Uh, my my guess is that the MPA is going to want to get this under their belt and digest this and see how it shakes out before they expand this to anything else. Yeah, free and some free. of the some of the other meds, you know, any medication can have a side effect on a certain part of the population that takes it. And one of the key things here is the uh, the, the proviso that you're not suffering any side effects from taking this medication. So for all practical purposes, you, you know. Right. Everything about your life is normal, except it wouldn't be quite so normal if you didn't take this medication. What was the rationale for disallowing it previously? <laughs> They're crazy people. They shouldn't be flying. There's an element of that, yeah, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and and the, that's kind of the element that I was getting at relative to the media coverage. It's... Geez, you know, first we got, you know, uh, Middle Easterners flying airplanes into buildings, and, and now we have crazy people flying airplanes, you know. Um, why, why do I have to put up with this kind of, kind of reaction? Um, but it's, it's as, as with so many things in, in, in aviation and in the main, mainstream media, it ain't that simple. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not. And... Some some of this was rooted in the we can't have no mentally maladjusted people, and depression's not always a, a, a mental issue. Uh, sometimes it's physiological, sure. uh, and uh, some of it was a uh, uh, I don't know relationship between the medications and and the disease. You couldn't be taking the medication. Uh, for other conditions that weren't disqualifying because the FAA considered if you were taking this class of medica medication, you were taking it for depression, end of story. Uh, so hopefully this will help some of those folks. But uh, the bottom line is the uh, first, second, third class medicals that they're opening up to this, there, there are conditions attached just like there were when the FAA went way out on a limb after years of lobbying by the Diabetes Association and created a path for diabetics to fly, as Luca Berta was talking on our podcast at uh, Lakeland on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, so uh, some of this was because of a lack of knowledge about the medication. Some exactly. of it was because it had an early history of causing adverse reactions in some people. Yeah. Well, on that comical note, <laughs> welcome, folks, to episode 182. I feel so bad about that now. 182 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Jack, Jack yeah. how does that make you feel? <laughs> this is apparently the Skylane episode, the 182 episode. We're recording this episode on, uh, what is it, Wednesday evening, uh, April 21st, 2010. And uh, uh, we have yet another odd uh, uh, arrangement here. Uh, we've mixed it, we've shuffled the deck again uh, with, uh, with locations and all, um, and I'll explain. But uh, first let me say, joining me here in the virtual hangar tonight is, uh, is Dave Higdon, who's talking to us from uh, back home in Wichita, Kansas. How are you doing, Dave? I am. I, I I'm think, doing okay. Are you sure you are, you're doing okay? You? No, you're not. Yes, I am. Everything's <laughs> fine. No, don't talk to me that way. Uh, yeah, back home again in Kansas. Toto, we're not in Florida anymore. Uh, after 
two weeks of working on various projects and various events, uh, culminating with the great finale in the rain on Sunday. We're back home in Wichita. Yeah. How was the ride home? Smooth, short, a couple of little bumps when we were overflying some weather in uh in uh, Mississippi and in, in uh, parts of Alabama, that uh, the view was spectacular. Uh, counting contrails crossing our paths. Mm-hmm. Now, Jeb, when you and I flew from uh, from Sarasota to yeah. Wichita, it took yeah. us how long? Like I don't, I don't remember. It was on the order of seven on, hours. On the order of I would say six flying hours. Yeah. All right, David. How long did it take you to fly home from, from Lakeland? Just a few seconds short of three hours, 15 minutes. Yeah, okay. like, you, you suck, man. <laughs> you, really, you really suck. Also joining me here in the virtual hangar is Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How you doing, Jeb? I'm fine. It's been a relaxing uh, laid-back week and uh, you know, some good friends and, and uh, good conversation and, and just good hanging out. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been a pleasure. Um, yeah. Sun and fun was great. Um, you have a house guests galore here. It's I sort have, of become I, your Jeb's home for wayward pilots. That's it's, right. It's, uh, it's uh, <laughs> uh, the, the Hidden River um, aircraft maintenance, uh, motorcycle maintenance, and Lonely Hearts Club co-op. <laughs> That's right. Well, let me explain, but first let me say I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from the home office in, well, no, okay. No, wait a second. Time out. <laughs> I'm talking to you also from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Uh, Jeb and I are actually in his little uh, home office here, uh, and uh, uh, I'm uh, wrapping up my stay here down in Florida. I've been having a great time, but uh, I think, what's today? Wednesday on Friday morning, I mount up and uh, drive home. But uh, we've been having some, having a lot of fun. Uh, Amy came over this morning. Yeah. Uh, we're, I guess we'll talk about that. I have that on the list a little bit later. Let's talk about that later on. But, uh, yeah, we've got all kinds of – so Dave was here for a while. That was, He was one of the wayward pilots. And uh, and then you, you soft-hearted person that you are, um, Luca Berta, uh, who we talked to in Lakeland um, – was one of many people who are unable to return home to Europe due yeah, to the uh, volcano dust problem. And uh, the, the update today was he's got eight more days yeah. uh, in the states before wow. uh, he can get a seat home. Yeah. So you said, "Come on over," and so yeah. he's he's joined the club here. And uh, he's so is Luca wandered. hanging around there now? Yeah. No, he well, he, oh, he, not right this moment. Yeah, he wandered off to visit with some friends in the area, but. Uh, uh, I think he wanted to get out of our hair while we did the podcast, but uh, but he's here and uh, we'll be back later. And we've been having a good old time. So, he was probably uh, afraid you'd stick a mic in his hand again. Maybe, huh? That could be it. <laughs> anyway, no. so uh, so we're back and we've sort of recovered from Sun and Fun 2010. Uh, David, you talked about it a little bit. Any any thoughts now that you've had a chance to catch your breath? Uh, yeah, that uh, neither wind nor rain nor financial gloom will keep people away from their favorite fly-ins and air shows and uh, Sun and Fun provided a lot of evidence of that uh, this year again uh, I'm not going to be surprised to hear that the crowd was down a little bit when the final tally is is out and that's not going to be for a little while Uh, but it it scored really strong points for energy level and and, in being upbeat, people are tired of doom and gloom and are ready to move on and fly and indulge themselves in what they need to fly. And there seemed to be a fair amount of that in in uh, in, in progress and on display at Sun and Fun. So you know the the little show that could did. Yep. 
That's a good way to put it. I mean, I think a lot of people are just are, are tired of the gloom and doom, and it's spring, and uh, we got airplanes, and we know how we know you know be, beware. We have airplanes. We know how to use them, um, and <laughs> if, if even if we don't use them to to go to sun and fun, you know, you go to sun and fun to get the blood boiling again, um, or, or or any other air show or or, or aviation outing. Uh, it doesn't have to be sun and fun, although you know certainly highly recommended. But this time of year, get out and do something. Yeah. Do you think that was the, the big story from this year's Sun and Fun? Or, or was there an airplane story? I mean, no, I think the big story is we're still here. Yeah. That's, that's the big yeah. story. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would propose a, an, alter, a, an alternate to that um, related story. But um, I think the continued growth of the LSA world is pretty astounding, if you ask me. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. That, that's one of the things that played into my overall gut feeling about I, I would that. say that the, the sustained presence of the LSA industry and market is is certainly a good sign. I don't know that I would say continuing growth. That the, There are a number of firsts that, that crop up all the time. And, of course, when you start with zero, the only place you can go is up. So um, certainly they're a continuing force in the market. They're a continuing option for a lot of people. Um but- Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. And there are some very, very, very interesting designs out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the variety is just staggering. Yeah, it really it? is. It is. It's. It's just phenomenal. And you know, sometimes I kind of pinch myself, saying, "Really? You know, the FAA actually did something right here uh, by by coming up with this standard and this certification uh, process." Um, but the don't, the, the don't tell variety, some guys. Yeah, the variety in the, in the just the dynamic nature of that segment of the industry is just very very interesting. Yeah. Well, we had at least <laughs> one new LSA launched there that I know of, and that was the Lightning uh, Piper, which took in uh, the the uh, Sport Cruiser, I believe it was from Czech uh, from the Czech Republic, called it the Piper Sport. Both of these companies. We're showing their airplanes for the first time at Sun and Fun. Both of them sold some of them. Yeah. Well, well, Piper Piper sold. Excuse me, showed theirs first at Sebring. Yeah, they showed it, and they came here, and they had a full blown. They had their entire indoor display built around that little Piper Sport. Uh, I noticed it when we went to that little soiree Friday night during the night show. That pretty much all the video running or written nearby and and the airplane on display was the Piper Sport. Right. Uh, some real marketing emphasis yeah. on the little airplane. What is what is Dave? What is your understanding of the arrangement between Piper and the original Czech manufacturer? The, the, that Czech manufacturer is is building the airplanes, building the parts, whatever, shipping them to Piper for assembly, and and you know putting Piper's name on it all along, or or what? Or did Piper buy them outright? What's that deal? The way I understand it, Piper has the rights to sell and market the airplane under their name. Okay. And it's in the United States Piper or worldwide? In the States, I believe. Okay. But I, I can't be certain about that. Uh, I need to go refer to uh, old materials from back at Seabrook. Yeah. Uh, but the airplane is specced to Piper specifications. Okay. Uh, and that's the, you know, the panel options and right. the uh, interior finishes. Yeah. Uh, Fit and finish it comes paint. in three comes in three versions. Uh, and putting that into their pipeline with their marketing horsepower in play, 
seems to be seems to be doing good things for the little airplane. So, uh, it, but, is this the new Tomahawk? Boy, I wouldn't use that word in association with the with the with the sport. That's just not fair to the sport. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on! Tomahawks are nice little airplane. There's really nothing Tomahawks wrong with Tomahawks are nice little that, airplanes. They that, had that, that, a massive no, burden to overcome to get to be nice. No, little nothing wrong with a Tomahawk. That you know, a couple of accelerated stalls won't cure. <laughs> but, but we still insist upon, yeah, right. That we we still insist upon yeah. calling it a trauma hawk, right? I gotta say, when that slips into the conversation, my 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 response is explained right there. Uh, it's their new trainer. It's their new entry level, much like Cessna's uh, uh, Skycatcher is their new one fifty one fifty two. Yeah. So uh, you 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 use the S word. I have to I have to follow up. So what's up with Cessna and Skycatcher? Well, yeah. both of them were at Sun and Fun. Yeah, but no, I want but both of them. Both, both of them. Well, but no, both not really, right? Um, you know, l- let me ask the question this way: For the last couple of years, Cessna and its Skycatcher have been sort of the the eight hundred pound gorilla. They've been, you know, everybody was waiting. They were going to make this marketplace, uh, and now uh, um, Piper has stolen their thunder. I mean, they really have. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Piper is not approaching the sales backlog that Cessna still holds okay in large part because the Cessna pilot centers have to get on board with this airplane yeah but there's, there's the old well, the, the flip side of which is the Piper uh, hasn't been out that long either it hasn't had three years right. to build up a backlog the, the, the flip side of that is the root model has been in production for quite a while and is not going through the teething pains that the teething pains that the Skycatcher is right now well that's yeah. kind of my point is that you know yeah I mean, you can say that they've got a big backlog, but that's really just sort of a fiction. You know, I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's good to have a backlog, but... Well, but I'm, I'm it, sure Cessna would disagree. Well, of course they would. are labeling it a how fiction. Many, how many, you know, I mean, how many airplanes on your backlog equals seven actually sold? Depends on how much you charge to get on the backlog. Well, that's not what, you know what I mean, anyways. All right. Yeah, um, a can to get into the backlog. What's that? Say again? It was ten thousand dollars to get that right. first thousand stock catchers. Ten thousand dollars. Now, I, I don't presume to guess whether their backlog has wavered a little bit on the basis of individual customers rethinking their decision. Uh, but remember, a big chunk of what Cessna depends on for its airplane pipeline is its institutional customers. So you're saying they've got a built-in marketplace that's going to... To a certain extent, yeah. yeah. Well, Piper does, too, to, to a, a lesser extent, all, all, at least in my perception. Um, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, they have you know, a number of, of uh, institutional uh, operators. Uh, University of North Dakota comes to mind. I think Embry-Riddle has a slew of Pipers. Um, I know several operators here in Florida do. Yeah. Uh, in part because, of course, you know, support is so close. I, 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 here's a, a question I want to ask. I'm not sure if it's a fair question, but I'll throw it out here anyways. Um, is the is the Piper Sport um, a comparably good airplane to what we expect the Skycatcher to be? Are they on par, these two airplanes? I would guess in a lot of ways just based on them meeting the same compliance specs, the, the answer is going to be largely yes. But I haven't flown the Sport. I'd love an opportunity to so I could do a comparison because hint, hint, I, hint, I managed to right. pick we, up we a couple of air and hours in the Skycatcher last yeah. year. 
and I've got good notes from that trip. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't flown either one of them, and it would be very, very interesting to do so. Um, um, but I think even when you do, I think you have to go fly a couple of the other. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the phrase non-traditional uh, manufacturers. Go fly a Technam. Uh, go fly a CT. Um, go fly a Gobosh, and and compare all of them, and um, you know, let us know what you find. Let us know what you find out. Let, let us know what the conclusions are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. Moving on. One last uh, sun and fun subject here, uh, and that is that uh, listeners have called our attention to uh, to two off-field landings uh, that we will call dual off-field landings of the week here. Uh, the first one is kind of cool. Um, the headline, this is from, what is this from? Let's see here. This is from, oh, our friends at TBO.com, the Tampa Bay Online people. A teen pilot makes emergency landing in Hardy County. An 18-year-old pilot and his younger brother, who had been at the Lakeland Sun and Fun Flying, had to make an emergency landing this afternoon in Hardy County. Pilot Juan Ortega of Weston had engine trouble and flew his Cessna 152 onto Mel Smith Road, a rural dirt road in eastern Hardy County. Um, when he landed, the plane's left wing clipped a fence post and the plane veered into a ditch. Um, I'll paraphrase, but uh, no one was inter- injured and uh, the airplane was damaged. Yeah, the, the story says the plane's nose gear collapsed and the left wing had minor damage. I'm guessing if the nose gear collapsed, the engines, well, the engine might not have been running. So yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe, well, it may not have been spinning. So Yeah, know. it may not have been spinning. It may have, may have stopped spinning on the rollout. They probably want to tear down the engine anyway. I, I would guess, given the the value of 152s, uh, that's probably a write-off. Yeah. Given uh, given the, the, the track record of teenagers out and about in cars together, this is kind of an impressive story. I, I agree. I think, uh, first of all, hats off to his instructor yeah. uh, for, for uh, you know, getting him to the point where he knows what he's doing. Secondly, you know, again, you know, there's nothing like having some skin in the game. Yeah, and he 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 pulled it out. He followed his training uh, when he needed to. And yeah, that's that's a good thing. They apparently walked away without any any injuries. I do want an injury report on their mother, who <laughs> 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 I would imagine had something of a of a uh, I don't know a, a conniption, you know, some sort of of rush. You know, hi ma, <laughs> we crashed the airplane. Another, but but we, brought, we brought home salsa. <laughs> no, no, that's the next one. Don't forget the canoe. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, the next one is the salsa one. Uh, this is the second off-field landing uh, came out of uh, Sun and Fun. Uh, this is from uh, theledger.com, whatever that is. Uh, let's see, what is that? That's the Lakeland newspaper. Ah, thank you very much. Uh, Lakeland, Florida Ledger. Pilot makes emergency landing in tomato field. Um, we have a nice picture here of this uh, midget Mustang. I'll call it a midget Mustang. I don't know if it's strictly That's speaking. That's a fairly saucy airplane. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, a midget Mustang is a specific model, so that wouldn't be appropriate here. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, it's it's a, but anyways, uh, Lakeland, Florida, a Titan T-51 Mustang made an emergency landing in a Lakeland tomato field Wednesday after his engine failed when the pilot attempted to alternate between fuel tanks. You know, it's just... One of the more dangerous things you do in flying is alternate between the fuel tanks. Can you say John Denver? I knew you could. Uh, well, this is not quite the same situation, I wouldn't think, but no, maybe. No, it's not. Um, 
This all happened during the Sun and Fun fly-in. The story goes on to say uh, this was according to the Lakeland Police Department. The pilot tried to land the plane, a three-fourth size replica of a World War II P-51 Mustang, on a dirt road, but a wheel veered off the road and the propeller dug into the dirt of the field. I wonder if that was one of the planes we saw over there by Paradise, kind of between Paradise City and I believe it is. Yeah. 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 Nice looking airplane. I like these little... I've got to look at my uh, my uh, uh, archives from Lakeland, but I think I may have photographed this flying in the showcase at Paradise City on uh, Saturday. So, uh, our Friday. Anyway, it's a shame that it's broke, but it's cool when everybody walks away, and it looks repairable. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the tag, the, the last couple of graphs in the story uh, indicate the owner said, hey, you know, it doesn't look like it's, it's that badly damaged. It'll probably fly you. Yeah. Congratulations to uh, both of these pilots for yeah. uh, doing a great job and, and getting down safely, uh, even though they hurt their airplanes just a little bit. But yeah. uh, it, It's a shame you have to you know, do that to be talked about on UCAP, but that's one of the requirements. Yeah. Well, better be talked about on UCAP under these circumstances than some of the others that we could conjure up. Yeah. So let's see. Now, a couple episodes ago, we got into the subject of what was better, a two-bladed propeller or a three-bladed <laughs> propeller. And um, and you guys pointed out to me something I didn't realize, although it kind of makes sense when you stop and think about it, and that is that, in fact, um, you know, l- lacking any fancy aerodynamic design, a two-bladed prop is better than a three-bladed prop. And you claimed that, in fact, a one-bladed prop is the most efficient. And and I marveled at the idea that there could be such a thing as a one-bladed prop that you'd need some sort of counterweight. Well, a listener, oh, it's Maverick Luca Berta. God bless him. Um, <laughs> uh, he went and dug up a picture of a one-bladed prop, not on an airplane, but on a test stand, I think. Um, but no, no, it's on a motor glider. Oh, is it on, on a oh, self right. launching sailplane? Of course, that makes sense because the fact there's only one blade makes it a little easier to stow when the one. Uh, Oh, it takes made, half the space. It, it's made just north of where Luca lives. Yeah. So uh, he says, I've seen a self-launching motor glider with a single-blade prop. Just found a picture online. Um, note the counterweight. He said, this is the Silent Club, an all-composite sailplane made in Lico. I think it would be just north of Milan, Italy. Um, it's kind of cool. I mean, it's just, I guess, it's exactly what you would picture, right? It's its just a propeller that's missing a blade. And instead of the blade on the other end, it's got this uh, this sort of half of a barbell sort of uh, counterweight. And uh, and uh, that's just odd, though. I just You've never been around on days when Jeb and I both needed counterweights, have you? I, I was going to say, there, there's there's a joke in there about, about counterweights <laughs> somewhere. But I, I, I will defer to the great Higdon. Yeah. Uh, interesting video. Sorry, folks. We're going to talk about a video. Um, this is uh, some folks hang gliding um, on a beach uh, where there is a, a deserted hotel, and uh, it, it's pretty interesting. They, they're launching from the beach, but then they seem to be using the uh, uh, the the face of the hotel as sort of a ridge to 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 capture ridge lift. What I would call ridge lift. Is this a fair description of it, J- uh, David? Absolutely. Yeah. They're using the uh, onshore wind. And, uh, uh, so they're just, and the building is a ridge. And so they're just flying around. There was actually some inter- other interesting things. These guys were having a good old time with their hang gliders down on the beach. They were, uh, 
I forget. I can't. I can't watch it right now because we're on Jeb's internet. God, Jeb's internet is doing I, great for us this week. I, 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 should, I should press pause then. Huh? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, all right. You can watch. We shouldn't both watch it. You can tell us what's interesting from it, Jeb. I, 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 I'm, I just paused it. I'm not. All right. Gonna, I'll worry um, about it later. But there was some fun footage there. They you, you uh, well enough alone. They, uh, in addition to seeing them fly, they were, uh, um, they were kind of having having a good time doing. They were like, what was it doing? They were, they were like facing into the wind and trying to kind of just lift up. There was a stiff enough wind that they were able to just kind of launch standing still almost, and uh, or almost launch standing still. It's a fun video. But the idea of them uh, soaring along the face of this hotel was, was pretty interesting. Uh, did you ever do anything like that, David? Uh, not exactly like that, but uh, have soared some, uh, some tree lines where uh, you didn't get much more than 75 or 80 feet above and sand dunes uh, and talked to. There have been a couple of buildings over the years where my fellow Langladder pilots and I discussed the relative potential and, and merits and risks of uh, getting our gliders on the roof of a big building going off on a windy day and soaring the building. Of course, uh, of course you're neglecting. But th- this is so cool because they're just using foot toes they're actually people on a line that are running to help get the glider off the ground and this is only a four-story hotel wow so you, you you're soaring a ridge that's only 50 60 feet tall at best all, and it this, all comes down to precise turn and speed management all of this of course is is to avoid discussion of mr higdon's well-known exploits in various hotels <laughs> not always with a hang glider, right? Yeah. Not always with a hang glider. This is true. But I mean, they're launching off a pad of of sand just next to one of the hotels with a bunch of people pulling on a rope. Uh, they're getting them up to about the height of the building. The pilot cuts the rope loose, and uh, you do basically one big long figure eight where your turn is always back into the wind, unless you're feeling really gnarly and uh, feel like you can complete a, a, a 270 and turn downwind. Uh, and, you know, maybe if it's just at the sweet spot, uh, but theoretically you shouldn't get more than, uh, if it's 50 feet to the top of the building, 100 feet off the sand, 110 feet is going to be about as high as, as, as the wind's going to take you. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about it is, at the end, you just land back on the beach where you started. And you don't uh, have that far to fall. And try to stay out of the water. Yeah, and try to stay out of the water. There were a couple of shots in that video of people who were touching down and kind of struggling to, to manage to touch down before they went too far out into the water. A few of them landed near you know, ankle deep in the, in the surf. It was interesting. Yeah, it's salt, salt water and anodized aluminum and, and, and uh, steel rivets are not the that's yeah, they, they don't they don't mix well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> another uh, another uh, callback here to an older episode. Uh, we let's see now. What was the story? It had to do with uh, a bunch of airplanes that never made it, and probably for good reasons. And one of them was an inflatable airplane that we all kind of liked. Um, once again, Luke has been busy uh, and uh, found us a photograph of another inflatable airplane. You know, when I first glanced at this picture, I thought this was a joke. But I got to take exception with this being in the same league as the inflatable that we saw before. All you know, uh, no discredit or, or anything to Luca. But this is a trike on <laughs> yeah. a little on a yeah. little inflatable boat with a hard hull like yeah. a Zodiac. It's basically well, yeah. Go ahead. 
well, it's not like the inflatable airfoil, fl- inflatable fuselage. Uh, if you took the little boat hull off there and put it on wheels, you'd be flying the same way. Right. Yeah. So it's really not an inflatable aircraft. It is an inflatable landing gear. Uh, yeah, but and now this is real. This is real. This it, this was supposed to be able to fly, right? This is not a oh, joke. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've seen it fly. It's that uh, seen one fly like that at Sunderland. Really? That's yeah. But it's straight floats. It's not amphib, right? <laughs> well, and it, it, in the case of this one, yeah, it's straight floats. But uh, there is a big monoflow rig you can get for some of these uh, light sport style aircraft, inflatable float from Lotus with uh, retractable gear, so they're amphibious. And Lucas says uh, here in his post that uh, uh, there is an amphib version, version. Yeah. No way. How did you do that? I well very carefully carefully on one level, but you probably use your muscle power to raise and lower the wheels as opposed to you know electrics or hydraulics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, whatever you say. All right. Hey, if you can handle the manual gear on a Mooney, you can handle the manual gear on some of these light sport with track. Uh, who was telling us recently about someone that had one of those old Luca, old Mooney? Was it a friend? Uh, got a straight M twenty Mooney. Uh huh. Um. And they were complaining about the the gear system and you know, how difficult, no, how stiff it is. Now, how does it work? Is it is it like a lever that deploy, or is it a crank kind of? It's thing? a lever. It's a lever. It's it's. Uh, I forget which position is which. I think on the ground it's vertical, and the the top of it has it goes into a fitting in the base of the panel, the instrument panel. So, how many degrees does this lever lever travel? In Ninety. Order? So that, it really? goes from vertical to flat on on the floor. Flat on the floor is gear up, and then vertical is gear down. Man, I mean, and that must take some muscle to deploy. Yes. Well, that's what they were commenting about. Uh-huh. You know, I, I kind of wonder if, if some maintenance on the on the landing gear system wouldn't help. There's, a, there's a trick to getting them down. Yeah. That really should lighten the load. Other than roll that's, inverted. Um, well, it's it's it has to do with making it starting a turn. And pulling to about one and a half or two G's in the turn, as you're bringing the handle from vertical to upright to lock in that notch, you start that turn and do a little pull. And centrifugal force will help the gear come down into the over-center position and let you lock that handle in in, in the uh, panel lock. I, th- I think uh, the complaint is about getting the gear up. Well, well let's go getting back to this down up. thing. I want to know, David, do you do this particular maneuver ideally on downwind, base, or final? I, I, when I was taught to do it in a Comanche, which has a, a, an emergency retraction system that's very similar to Mooney's manual gear, uh, I was taught to do it on the turn from downwind to base. Oh, I see. Actually use the turn. Okay. I was sort of making Actually, a joke, but that makes sense. Uh, all right. All right. Um, moving on here. Um, so this is a very serious story. Um, God, we, We've been we've been all wrapped up in sun and fun for the last few weeks, and so we've kind of left this one on on the uh, on the table for a while. But um, it, it probably merits our talking about it a little bit, and that is the uh, the uh, tragic plane crash over in. Uh, um, I'm not sure exactly what part of this former Soviet Union was in Russia. I'm or, not sure. Either. But uh, that in Russia, yeah. That uh, that resulted in the death of the uh, president of Poland and a, and a great number of the high leadership of Poland, and. Uh, 
it's just an, an, an incredible situation. Not that we know exactly what happened yet, but this picture seems to be forming up. And Jeb, you wrote an interesting essay that you put on the uh, UCAP homepage. Um, yeah. You, you want to kind of elaborate you know, well, on this a little bit? And, and let me emphasize, no one knows. There, there's been no final determination of probable cause. I don't know what, the, what specific agency it is that's responsible. I can assure you that both Polish and Russian authorities will be investigating this uh, until... Uh, um, um, as long as they can and as, in, in as much detail as they can for some period of time. Um, the, uh, the airplane was a TU-154, which is basically a, a Russian version of the, the uh, Boeing 727. Uh, this was a, a rather new airplane, although the, the design is older. Um, this was maybe a 20 or so year old airplane. And a lot of people have said, well, you know, what in God's name is the head of state uh, riding around in a 20 year old airplane? Well, you know, funny thing about that, um, the uh, 747s, I think they're VC-37As or Bs or something, that uh, is the, the Presidential Air Force One fleet, the, both of them, they're 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Already, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, let's, let's move on from the airplane being, uh, or, or the airplane's age, anyway, being a part you're, of the You're problem. saying those, those particular airframes are 20 years old. The particular airframe yeah. that went down is, was only 20 right. years old. But what about the U.S. Air Force Ones? Air Force Ones are 20 years old. Those, not They're the design, those particular airframes. Those airframe. particular airframes. Those okay. particular airframes. Those particular, yeah. particular airframes. Yeah. They, they, they first were put into service during the latter half, latter part of the uh, Bush administration, I believe. Clinton administration, eight years. Um, Bush one administration eight years that's sixteen, um, and here we are a year year and a half into the Obama administration. Yeah, they came out in the middle of, or so latter half of the Bush the first Bush administration. Yeah, they were put into service then. Uh, and so the, the, air, the, the airplanes they replaced were even older. Yeah, that's true. The, the, the old uh, um, VC one thirty fives, VC I'm sorry one thirty sevens. Um, uh, also known as a 707. 707, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, um, so so I think we can probably discount the airplane and or its design or and or age being really part of the problem here. But from, from press reports, and of course um, you have to take a lot of that with a grain of salt, but some of them have been fairly authoritative. The crew was on its fourth attempt to get into this airport. Um, the controllers uh, at the at the airport had had told the crew, you know, basically don't don't even try this, don't land here, go somewhere else. <clears throat> and um, whether by by uh, actual pressure or perceived pressure, um, the pilots just continually made approaches at this runway. And I guess my uh, my reaction to this is. Um, I've always been trained, you know, take take a look at the runway. Take a take a look at the approach. Even if it's reported below minimums, it doesn't hurt anything. At least, you know, you can do this under part ninety one. You can't do it in one thirty five and one twenty one. Um, take a look. Uh fly the approach down to minimums. If you can find a runway environment, um um great. If you can't, you know, you you should be spring loaded for the miss anyway. Go around. Uh it's up to you at that point what to do. If you screwed up that approach and you know what you did wrong and, you know, I've been there, done that, have the T-shirt, um, go back and, and, and do it again, knowing that, you know, what you did wrong and that you can fix it. And uh, if you saw the runway environment the first time, you'll likely see it again and, and, and you'll know what to expect. Um, but if you see nothing, 
you know, go on, go 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 to your alternate, go to a deviate uh, uh, somewhere. The, I don't know, you know, what the crew saw the first couple of three times, but guys, this was the fourth guys and gals. This was the, their fourth bite at this apple, and uh, at some point you got to say, in in my rule of thumb, is two max, uh, depending on the circumstances. At some point you got to say this is uh, this is insanity. You're you're repeating the same behavior and expecting a different outcome. Go somewhere else. Bingo. They, they didn't do that and and came up short, uh, I don't know, a mile and a half or so from the runway, um, uh, hit some trees. It's just a classic get-there-itis uh, kind of, of, of situation. And uh, um, I don't know, this is supposed to be a professional crew, and, and they're carrying heads of state and, and you know, the top echelon of the, of the Polish government. There, there, there should have been a little bit more discipline here. If, in well, fact, a- all of that is what happened here, we don't know yet. But from, from all the current reports, that does appear to be the big picture. Yeah. David? This was, this was not a precision approach. Yeah, correct. So, it, it was, it was, there was no ILS at this airport. So they're, they're probably shooting an NDB or something. I, I, I don't know about VOR in the Soviet Union, or the, excuse me, in Russia. But NDBs are very prolific elsewhere around the world. Yeah. This was not a precision approach. The decision altitude for this, or decision height, uh, would, uh, would would be far higher than on an ILS. Uh, and we know from reading past NTSB reports that pilots on non-precision and precision approaches are sometimes tempted by the idea that they know the airport is down there. And who's it going to hurt? If I get a little below, because there's supposed to be a protected area, at least in the United States, you know, on, on approach, but that's a finite piece of real estate. Uh, getting below the minimum approach altitude a mile and a half from airport on the hopes that you're going to get down there and see the ground is a bad bet because you may well see the ground, but it could will be in the form of those trees that are about to tear your airplane apart. There's there's a reason they put these altitude numbers on these approaches. You That's know? right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not a guideline. Yeah. And the idea of going back for a second bite on non-precision and precision approaches both is, is you know, not foreign and certainly not something that should never be attempted. But... Going back for a second or third or fourth bite, well, second bite, I can see. The uh, conditions may have changed. If you have a pilot report, the conditions change. Weather report, the conditions have improved. Something to indicate that you're not going back just to see the same gray inside of the eggshell that you saw the first time. Yeah, maybe. But lacking that information, any further attempt beyond number two it's just begging for the, I'll just get a little lower this time, and I'm sure I'll see it this time around. It's it happened to GA pilots. It's happened to military pilots. It's happened to airline pilots. Uh, it's happened to business aircraft pilots. It is a human problem, not an equipment problem. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you shouldn't bloody well do it. Yeah. 
I mean, it really, I think it's going to become the, the, the poster child for get their and uh, it, it, it will. The other thing it's going to become a poster child for is putting all your eggs in one basket. Really? Uh, there should not have been that many high government officials from one state government or one government on, on the same airplane at the same time. It yeah. never should have happened. Yeah. So. Well, and that started a whole big discussion uh, in some general interest publications about the wisdom of of uh, business aircraft, you know, carrying two or more principles, which is kind of amuses me after the beating business aviation's taken the last twenty twenty four months. Yeah. Where it's you know it's a, it's 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 ridiculous luxury and, and and lack of necessity to be getting to a point where companies cut back on the number of airplanes they had, sometimes putting more people of, of important position on the same airplane, and now we're going, maybe we shouldn't do that. Well, I saw that same, I saw a story in, in, on uh, uh, Fox, and I think I posted about it also, but the punchline, they didn't even talk to NBA in that story. Um, well, what a shock. Yeah, yeah I know. What a talk shock. To somebody Fox, with Fox back- committed a journalistic gaffe. Yeah, I, 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 I know. Color me surprised. Uh, um, but um, at the same time, NBAA and, and you know conscientious operators uh, know that you know th- bad stuff can't happen, and and you don't put uh, all your top level people on the same airplane at the same time. Some yeah. some companies' operational specs and their insurance requirements, you know, uh, kind of take that into account. And say you shouldn't do that. Don't do that. Right. Right. Uh, uh, and there's this uh, this whole thing about. Uh, Critical personnel, irreplaceable uh, people. Of course, we all know nobody's irreplaceable. Uh, but the idea that you do things not just when you're flying, but in your regular operations to make sure that the same, that, you know, all the important people can't be taken out right. by one catastrophic thing. But it never gets down to putting. You know, president, vice president, CEO, chairman in separate buildings because of the idea of one of them falling down. So there's a limit on how far they take this. Airplanes are usually under that umbrella of you shouldn't do that. Yeah, everybody knows the vice president should be at an undisclosed location. <laughs> uh, Does that mean he's got your spare bedroom, Chad? <laughs> so, uh, as I mentioned, I'm still down here in Sarasota uh, visiting Jeb. And uh, um, a few weeks back, uh, we were talking with Amy, and I expressed a desire while I was down here to get a ride in her Kit Fox. I've always admired Kit Fox aircraft, and uh, and I-, I wanted to at least see hers and, if possible, get a ride on it. And it- yeah, in it, and uh, and and she was from the moment I said this, you know, very very gracious. She says, "Oh, absolutely, Jack, we're going to do this." And and when I got down here and we were touching base uh, in Lakeland last week, and and I was like going, you know, okay, I don't want you to go out of your way here. If I can, if you can make this happen, she was determined to make this happen. She was not going to not let me. She was not going to let me get away without getting my Kid Fox ride. And uh, as a result, this morning, uh, she flew up here to Hidden River from uh, Fort Myers, and uh, uh, and uh, landed, and we chatted for a while. And, uh, uh, of course, Jeb and, and Luca were here as well. Um, and uh, we, we spent some time looking over the airplane. It's just, you know, it, it's a Kit Fox, and it's an older Kit Fox. It's apparently, what, 17 years old, she yeah, said. Like and, uh, um, 
so it's a very basic airplane, but it's just a it's just a great you know grassroots airplane yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, uh, tail dragger. Obviously, uh, it's got a a Jabiru. Uh, I believe it's an eighty five horse engine in it, and uh, um, it's you know it's just a really cool little airplane. Uh, yeah, really control is. control sticks uh, and uh, uh, very very cozy once you climb into it. Um, and you know I'm not the biggest guy in the world, and and Amy's not very big. Um, she was coming to me when we, once we kind of mounted up and we were in there getting ready to go, how cozy it was. And she's saying, can you imagine what it would be like if Barry, her husband, was in the left seat? He's a big guy. Yeah. Um, so, uh, um, but, but it was great. I mean, and once we got going, you just had no sense of, there was certainly no claustrophobic sense. Um, so we uh, taxied out here and uh, took off to the... West. <laughs> I'm so bad at directions. I don't know why I'm so turned around here. Uh, we took off to the West. Um, because I'm not uh, tailwheel endorsed, uh, Amy did the takeoff and landing. Um, but once we got up to cruise, uh, she gave me the airplane and I flew it for the rest of the, uh, all the way until we were back on downwind. Um, but the, one of the cool parts of this was that uh, we didn't go very high. We were like 600 MSL, which is about 550 uh, AGL. And uh, we were puttering around this uh, big state park um, uh, to the south of where Jeb's uh, air park is. And, uh, and so we were just puttering around, maneuvering all around that area, looking at the lakes, looking at the rivers, you know, checking out the people in their kayaks. Um, I'll tell you, flying it at, uh, at uh, you know, 600 feet is just a whole different kind of experience. It's, it's just very, very different in terms of what you can see and, and you know, the whole, the whole experience. Um, so that was pretty cool. Um, like I said, we, we maneuvered around the area for about a half an hour, and then we came back. And, uh, and uh, on downwind, uh, Amy took the airplane back, and uh, we coasted in and, and landed. And um, I just wanted to thank Amy for the, uh, for the ride. It was, it was really a thrill, and it just kind of you know, reinforces an idea that's been kind of percolating in my mind for the last um, you know, few months as I think through this whole buying an airplane thing. And that is uh, the, that I, I really do... And it probably won't, maybe won't be my only airplane, but I want a, I want a smaller airplane. I like yeah. that low and slow yeah. kind of flying. Um, I find that very appealing. And uh, so uh, we were talking about the idea, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of ha only half joking, but uh, about, well, maybe this is what I should do. I should build a Kit Fox. And her immediate response was, you know, maybe instead of thinking about Kit Fox, think about the Highlander, uh, which is a very similar design, uh, a tail dragger, you know, tube and fabric. Oh, I just—I've I've flown the Highlander. Yeah, yeah. What'd you think of it? You like uh, it? I liked it. I liked it. Uh, really nice, straightforward, honest little airplane. Mm -hmm. uh, photographed one flying uh, in the showcase at Paradise City on Saturday. That did a demonstration that I really regretted. I couldn't figure out a way to commit to film in any meaningful way, film relatively speaking, because the trick was the pilot landed this Highlander, all black and on somewhat large balloon tires, landed it eastbound on the Paradise City runway after doing his aerial demonstration, and without ever letting the tail drop below horizontal, taxied about 300, 350 feet, did a 180-degree turn, taxied back up the runway another 400, 500 feet, then turned back around into the wind again, eastbound, and started his takeoff roll, lowering the tail below horizontal only when it was time to rotate, which came at about 
Oh, I don't know, 75 feet into the takeoff roll. Oh, that's kind of a cool stunt, I guess. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't call was, it a stunt. That doesn't do it justice. But uh, it, it was a remarkable display of control yeah. and power and breaking coordination. Uh, like nothing I had seen it done before, but no better in much bigger airplanes, but definitely no better than this guy did on Saturday. Cool. Yeah. So... I, I was a little shocked. I, I went to the Highlander website. I was kind of curious what it would cost to uh, to uh, purchase the kit and, and build one of these things. And uh, it, it's still a little. I mean, it's not like a hundred and hundred and twenty thousand dollar LSA, you know. But the kit, the airframe, um, was about twenty five thousand dollars, and then the engine was another fifteen. Which engine? Uh, the Jabiru eighty five. I think is the one I was looking at, and. Uh, um, it's still a lot of money. Trader plane is your friend. Yeah, I guess. But I, I well, yeah. There it, is the whole kit, there is the whole build a kit versus buy a ready-made airplane question, which is a very, you know, I mean it's a very real question. We, we, it's like almost it is a very real dabbed, question. Dabbed in that question once. My answer to that question is timing. Well, yeah. I've always said, I mean, I've hung out with builders for years, even though I've never been a builder. I've been hanging out with builders for a long time. And I long ago realized that that you don't build an airplane because you want to fly an airplane. You build an airplane because you want to build an airplane. Um, if you want to fly an airplane, then you buy an airplane that's already built. You go buy an airplane. Yeah. And building, if you want to fly, building is a great way to occupy those days when you're not flying the airplane that flies. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, uh, I, I would encourage you to build your own airplane. But at the same time, if you want to go flying, it's going to be a while before you go flying exactly. if you build your own airplane. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you, Amy, for, uh, yeah, it was for good to see Amy making that happen and uh, uh, giving me a treat. ride. Yeah. It was a, I, I'm just, you know, it was like, for those of you who live in the right, I don't know whether it, it's Lay's Potato Chips are a national product, right? Yeah, that's right. It was Luca. I was telling Luca the story, and he's going, he's looking at me funny because he's from Italy. I was walking around the place, you know, kind of like six inches off the floor, you know, after this ride, and I was saying, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, bet you can't fly just once, you know, because I just wanted, desperately wanted to go and fly. And again. if I didn't, if I wasn't tied to my computer this afternoon, we might have gone somewhere. Yeah. So, uh, um, uh, but uh, it was a lot of fun, Amy. I appreciate it. And uh, somehow, some way, I will return the favor one day. Here's a cool story. Um, I This is, uh, again, a lot of these stories are from a few weeks back because we've been so involved uh, with uh, with Sun and Fun. Uh, this is from the WGVU uh, website. Uh, the uh, Let's see now. A service of Grand Valley State University. Uh, once again, they don't really tell us a lot about where they are, but uh, uh, must be Michigan because the headline is West Michigan Aviation Academy to open this fall. And the story says uh, West Michigan business leader Dick DeVos announced his plans Thursday to launch a new charter high school centered on aviation. He quote, uh, they're quoting him saying, aviation is something that inspires us as human beings. Some of us may be a little bit more, some of us may be a little bit more than others, but the possibility of flight is something that there is, there's a magic there. There's a, an energy that uh, for students who have that inside them, they're going to resonate with this right away. Um, so DeVos uh, is a, a, a businessman uh, and pilot who is uh, is uh, sort of ramrodding this whole project, and I think it's awesome. I just it's very cool. I think this is really really cool. We actually um, I, I heard I saw this story a couple weeks ago, and then while we were in Lakeland, we heard about the. Uh, 
I believe it was the CFAA, the Central Florida Aviation Academy, that is already going but is now getting a new facility there at Lakeland uh, on the airport grounds. Uh, once again, a high school that is focused on uh, aviation. Um, and I, boy, I just can't get over how, I can't be, tell you how cool I think this is. Um, to the point where I'm thinking, you know, maybe up in Nashua, New Hampshire, we have a uh, we have kind of a sad situation brewing where the uh, um, the uh, university, Daniel Webster College, that's uh, partly based at Nashua Airport, right. um, has decided recently to uh, end a lot of their aviation programs. And so a lot of that program is disappearing. And it suddenly occurred to me, maybe we should start some sort of charter high school um, there and uh, focus on aviation as the, as the sort of central theme for all sorts of, uh, of uh, educational programs. I just... I think it's cool. And I, I just want to, you know, this maybe might have been a shout out, but I really wanted to give a, a few seconds to talk about the uh, the West Michigan Aviation Academy. And uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to anybody who wants to learn more about this. But uh, I think it's very cool and we should all be trying to uh, figure out ways to, I'm, I'm actually, this is serious. I'm serious. We should be figuring out ways to motivate our schools to use aviation as an example for learning programs, you know, in science and in physics and in math, you know, um, they should be using uh, aviation examples. I think it would be great a lot of different ways. It would motivate the kids and it would uh, expose them to aviation. And uh, If you have an, an empty weight of X and a gross weight of Y and your passengers, fuel, pilot, and, and, and uh, uh, baggage uh, weigh Z, how much beer can you carry? <laughs> yeah, that's that's what we want to teach in high school. Yeah. All right, I'm sorry. I'm digging here for the next story. What is it here? I'm actually skipping here. This is the one I want. Uh. Well, it's it, it it's okay if this wasn't if this one doesn't stretch into the usual. What? When you run out, run out. No, yeah, no, no. We're good. We're good. We're almost there. Um, this is from a blog called The Hangar. Uh, observations in innovations and conversation about general aviation um, by a guy named Chris Findlay. And uh, uh, he tells the story about uh, a partial engine failure that he experienced uh, um, while doing, I'm not sure if he was leaving the pattern. He obviously ended up staying in the pattern. Um, I won't read the whole story, but, uh, but just to kind of paraphrase it, I hope correctly. Um, they were, it was uh, him and a student, I think, and they were climbing out, a normal climb out, and uh, he had been noticing during the run-up and during the initial addition of power that the engine was just kind of not performing quite right, but it didn't seem enough to merit, um, in, you know, taking any actions. And uh, and then just as they were climbing out, it really started to run extremely rough. Uh, didn't um, lose um, a significant amount of power, but was running incredibly rough. And he just tells the story of the whole process here. Um, how they uh, they uh, he was very very low. He never would have been able to turn at that point, um, and so he just struggled to uh, to stay in the pattern and come around and, and land. And it's just an interesting story. Um, it's a great I don't know uh, uh, object lesson for those of us who have never had this kind of uh, of uh, engine failure and uh, help you help you visualize how it would work and how help you think through what you might do in this circumstance. The part of it that I found most interesting is that when I don't know if I could find the exact words in this story, but what happened was that when he had the uh, when it started running really rough. What he chose to do at that point was suddenly go to VX speed um, in order to gain as much altitude as quickly as possible. 
and and I guess when I think about it, that makes sense. But it did take me a little bit by surprise. Is that would that be your inclination too? Yeah, a, a single, absolutely. Um, I, if I'm about to lose my engine, I want as much air between me and terra firma. As and I you're can not get. worried by doing that that you're going to risk slowing down the airplane. <clears throat> I'm going to slow down the airplane, but, but I mean, slowing that energy for altitude. Yeah. So you're gonna really pay attention to airspeed while you're doing yeah, this. That's why we have an airspeed indicator. Yeah, because you, you pay attention easy. to airspeed the same as you would any other time. That's right. Yeah, that's why we have an airspeed indicator. Um, I mean, the one time I've had to really worry about, you know, am I going to land on a runway? Or am I going to land on a, on a, in a field? It was it was insanely easy. I will I will admit that up front. But um, I had all kinds of altitude. I had to do three sixties. And, and fly at the top of the white arc or, or, or gear extension speed uh, for a while to get down on my chosen runway. I had that much excess mm-hmm. energy, and, yeah. and I didn't touch down about about a third down the runway. Um, yippee! <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, because I wouldn't want the alternative. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, um, yeah. Right. Um Anyways, congratulations to them for uh, for doing a good job here, and thank them for uh, for publishing the story to help us think through this whole process. Uh, that would go down as the on-field landing of the week. The on-field it? landing, yeah, exactly. There you go. The on-field landing of the week. Finally, um, I, we, I was talking with a listener uh, uh, last week in Lakeland while we were at Sun and Fun, and uh, he was telling me about, and I'm not going to name him um, for perhaps obvious reasons, but uh, he's working on building what will be um, a, well, a, an, e, an LSA. What do they call it? ELSA? Okay. Um, and, uh, and he will fly it under a sport pilot license. Um, but the, the LSA that he's building uh, will be capable of aerobatic flight okay. and in fact that's the way he wants to fly it um one of the things he's telling me he was doing it at sun and fun was buying a parachute um uh, so that he'd have a good good gear um, and this question that came up is um is it in fact legal for a sport pilot to do aerobatics assuming the aircraft is properly you know set up and you know certified and whatnot assuming the aircraft is flown within the limitations prescribed by the manufacturer well i yeah. you know, i mean am, am I, it, it, it would seem to me my first thought was wait a minute sport pilots all about you know very conservative flight and you know you don't fly at night and you don't fly faster than a certain speed and and whatnot um aerobatics the more I thought about it, the more I realized, of course, I mean, you know, as long as all other things being, you know, kept in line. Yeah, there's, there's, there's aerobatics, and then there's, you know, Patty Wagstaff and, 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 and right. Matt Yonkin and all that. And it, it doesn't necessarily rise to that level of pulling the skin off your face G-forces to, to do aerobatics. Right. Another thing we were talking about is the fact that you know everyone talks about this 120 knot uh, speed limit uh, for uh, for that's uh, a straight and straight LSA. level full power. Right. It's not it's not a speed limit that you're allowed to fly the airplane at. It's it's a it's a straight and level cruise. It's sort of what the plane should be spec'd for. Well, it's, rather than rather than speculate about any of that, why don't we just you know kind of go to the horse's mouth? Oh, he's been surfing the web, folks. And and we'll go to part 61. Subpart J, um, section sixty-one point three zero one, sport pilots, or and specifically three fifteen. Mm-hmm. Okay, sixty-one point three fifteen. What are the privileges and limits of my sport pilot certificate? 
if you hold a, a pilot certificate, yada, 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 uh, you may uh, share the expenses. There's nothing in You can't fly in, in Class A airspace. You can't fly at, at night. You can't fly carrying more than one passenger. You can't fly in furtherance of a business. You can't fly for compensation or higher. Um, um, boom. That's about it. doesn't say anything about aerobatics. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, as Dave correctly points out, um, it, it really comes down to uh, what the manufacturer recommends for the aircraft. Now, um, you know, I don't have the juice to do this, but but I'm sure other other people out there, maybe some of our listeners, are able and capable of designing and building an aerobatic, fully aerobatic aircraft, or certainly an aerobatic aircraft that is light sport compliant. Mm-hmm. How they go around getting it certified in in the light sport category, I don't know. Uh, I presume it could be done, and I would presume that somebody has probably done it. Here's another question that came up in our conversation. Um, as we all know, I think, um, aerobatic flight requires that you wear uh, a parachute. Um, intentional aerobatic flight. Yes, in, yeah, intentional aerobatic flight requires you wear a parachute, and thus this is why this particular listener was shopping for a parachute. Mm-hmm. Um, the airplane he's building has, as part of it, a, an airframe parachute, one of these ballistic chutes, okay. would that parachute fulfill the requirement for a aerobatics? That I don't know. Well, um, you're, you're looking it up on the web here. Oh, okay. Well, okay. David, what do you think? I'm not sure that it would. I don't think uh, it would either. And that would take a little bit more research. Uh, the parachute on these aircraft that... Is is installed in a lot of them. It's installed as part of the compliance approval, and it's there to you know to take care of things should something go haywire, something break. But I don't know of any. I'd have to talk to my friends at BRS, but I don't know that any of these are tested for deployment and at at the kind of attitudes that may occur when when you when you have to deploy doing aerobatics. Right. For example, if you're upside down and coming down cattywampus and you have to deploy the parachute, uh, the rocket's going to take it away from the airframe. It's going to give you a line stretch and all that, and the cover's going to come off. Except all that's going to be done downward. And whether that would open under those circumstances uh, in the normal manner I don't know. There are a whole lot of physics involved here that could make that not the best idea, because mm-hmm. if the if the if the plane falls past the parachute and then you get this big opening shock from that delay in the parachute filling, you could overstress the lines that hold the parachute to the airframe, which would put you kind of back where you were to begin with. Uh, worst case, uh, personally, I'd. Just prefer to wear a parachute. Yeah, and be done with the whole thing. But then yeah. you have to jump out of the airplane, which, as I've said in the past, is something I'm not sure if I could do. Even well, two two thoughts or three thoughts actually. Ninety one dot three oh seven parachutes and parachuting. You did find okay. it. Okay, go ahead. Um, anyway, um, airframe parachutes a great thing. It saved a lot of lives. It'll save a lot more lives. Um, my concern, you know. Versus my concern relative to the question of, of is the airframe parachute sufficient? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, I can see envision a lot of scenarios where the part of the airframe containing the parachute is not the part of the airframe I end up in. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> well, there is that. Yeah, there is that. In an aerobatic, in an aerobatic situation. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> I, I, I'll take my own parachute with me. Oops. <laughs> Oops. And uh, you ask, you mentioned the, the, the speed limit, which we got mostly right. You know, it does not keep you from going over 120 knots slash 138 miles an hour in a dive, for example. Right. The limiting factor on the airframe is like the limiting factor on any airframe, and that's the manufacturer's expressed VNE, the red line, red velocity line. never to exceed. The 138-mile-an-hour-slash-120-knot limit by regulation on LSA is calibrated airspeed. Which is indicated airspeed corrected for instrument in error. Straight and level flight. In straight and level flight. Uh, so, you know, the, the short answer would be it's indicated airspeed. Yeah. Most of us know that there's a calibrated airspeed that's not exactly necessarily the same as the indicated airspeed. That's the correction for instrument error. It's easier to just go with indicated in most cases. But indicated airspeed, straight and level flight. So if you overspeed it on descent or you fall out of the top of a loop and you don't break it and you hit 145 knots and nothing breaks, nobody's going to call you from the FAA and say, uh-uh-uh. Oh, you guys, all night long you guys stop talking just as I lean over to reach my computer here to look at something. Okay, well, that's good. Um, shout-outs. What do we got here? Um, I've got... Uh, Two I wanted to call attention to here. Let's see now. I'm just trying to get my all my ducks in a row here. Um, first of all, uh, I've heard from a listener who goes by in the forums by the name of Trish Seven, uh, who signs her post Patricia, and Patricia writes, "Hi everyone. I'm a student sport pilot of 62 tender years and have been thoroughly enjoying the podcast through the last two years that I've been training. Um, and so I just wanted to say hi. She she says it has certainly helped keep me going when I." didn't have a lot of support elsewhere she says thank you to us and that's really nice but but more to the point here is that uh, that uh, she's a student sport pilot at age 62 and that's just awesome uh keep it up and uh, and that's terrific um trish points uh, calls our attention to a website that she found called onetankflights.com which uh, is uh, a, a site for uh, just kind of giving you ideas of places to go flying. Uh, uh, discover the fly-ins, on-field, museums, sightseeing, campgrounds, parks and wildlife and whatnot. So if you're looking for ideas of where to go flying, you might want to check out onetankflights.com. And uh, thank you, Trish, for that, and keep up the great work with your flight training. And then secondly, uh, Hunter. Hunter, who we met uh, at uh, the uh, Venice uh, meet up sure. the other day. A yeah. high school student, a high school senior, uh, already a licensed private pilot, uh, came in by himself in a, uh, a 172 SP and was telling us all about his different adventures flying and uh, very, very active in aviation, going to go to uh, Embry-Riddle, I believe it is, okay. uh, next year to continue uh, his uh, uh, pursuit of an aviation career. Um, he told me a little bit about this and then posted about it in the forums. Uh, he has started a podcast of his own, uh, which he calls Pilots in College, and and uh, it's apparently just your basic hangar flying kind of podcast, but it is aimed at uh, students, uh, college age uh, uh, student pilots or, or active pilots, uh, and and you know 
issues that are, are perhaps specific to that to that age group. Uh, so that's kind of cool and kind of interesting. And if you are uh, a younger person or if you're an older person who's interested in, uh, you know, kind of seeing how the other half lives, I guess is one way to put it, uh, you might want to check out pilotsincollege.com and uh, uh, UCAP listener Hunter, who is putting it together. So uh, those are my two shout-outs. You guys got any shout-outs? Uh, just one, and it's, and it's to one of our listeners. Um uh, Greg uh, Bilkey, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of the last name, uh, wrote an email, thanks to uh, 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 Jack for, for tre- retrieving it and posting it, linking, the topic is is uh, airplane and vehicle uh, collisions. Uh, we, a couple of, of uh, episodes ago, well, several episodes ago, actually, we talked about uh, um, an episode where... Um, a car actually flew into, or, or I'm sorry, drove into, thank you, Jack, um, an airplane, um, or vice versa. And uh, the, our, our listener, uh, Greg, had uh, uncovered, a, he apparently witnessed a similar episode. It turns out that in 1978, in uh, Livermore, California, uh, there was a similar uh, event. Uh, pilot uh, Grace Page uh, making a pass at a Camaro. Uh, and embedded her right main landing gear in the Camaro's windshield. Oops. Oops. Yeah. Uh, everybody walked away unhurt, although um, um, we're told the cleaning bill for the shorts, I mean, sorry, the cleaning bill for the seats in the Camaro was rather steep. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting story. Interesting story. Thank you to that listener for sending that along. David? Two. Okay. From, uh, first off, to my... Uh, to my uh, friends here in Wichita, the the Weebies, whose uh, Be Light Dragon was uh, named Grand Champion Ultralight at Sun and Fun Yay. this year. Their first appearance there with their little uh, Part 103, 254-pound, $25,000 ready-to-fly single-seater. Uh, congratulations to them. Uh, I think they... I think they may be on to something here. Uh, the ultralight movement got neglected. It got small. But we're seeing that it still had a presence at at, at, uh, at Lakeland. <laughs> still had a strong presence at Lakeland, uh, some of which we talked about before. I won't belabor that. My second shout-out is more up in Jack's territory to Heritage Aviation at the uh, Burlington Airport. Uh, they're opening up a new FBO. Uh-huh. Burlington, uh, Vermont. Burlington, Vermont in May. Uh, it's an outgrowth of a, of a charter company that's been up there for uh, 25 years. Uh, the new FBO is uh, going to offer the usual services uh, for transient pilots and base pilots and flight planning. And now they're also offering a gym and a game room and a media room and and of course, the always important daylight sleeping rooms for pilots that are weird, working weird hours. The thing that caught my attention about this story is that they are opening up a brand new 79,000 square foot FBO facility that's using solar power and wind power uh, to generate some of its uh, uh, electrical needs. They're collecting and recycling and reusing rainwater as part of the operation. Uh, even the uh, uh, pavement out in front 
is something that's recycled and will allow rainwater to pass through the ground and be soaked into the ground rather than run off, which is a good thing for uh, storm drain systems. So, uh, way to go to Heritage Aviation A for having the the, the, the nerve and the resources to build and open a, a new facility for a new FBO, but taking the construction down a path that may not be the least expensive, but I'm betting will pay long-term dividends in their uh, electrical utility bills. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, it's definitely time to stick a fork in this one. Let me uh, say uh, thank you to my friends here. Uh, Dave Higdon uh, is uh, Dave is an aviation photographer and also an aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, let's see. Here recently, EAA.org with some uh, some work from uh, Sun and Fun, uh, AEA.net, dot biz. if you want to see the pretty pictures uh, or let me know what you think of the pictures. Uh, or Google my name and, you know, roll the dice and see what you come up with. There you go. And Jeb Burnside uh, is uh, an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Where can people find you on the Internet, Jeb? Well, AviationSafetyMagazine.com is a good place to start. Uh, personal website, uh, although I don't know why anyone would visit that, is uh, JEBurnside.com. And uh, occasionally I'll pop up on uh, avweb.com. There you go. Uh, I'm, I'm leaving soon, I promise. I, I've been here. You know. I feel like I've been here forever. It's been great. I'm having a great time. I, um, I, dude, I, I'm just sorry you have to go. Uh, and we, we still have plenty of stuff to do. Got to go back to work. Hate it when that happens. I but know, uh, yeah, I'll come back. I'm having a good old time. I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, uh, a new media producer, and a big, big mooch on my friends. But uh, <laughs> they seem to tolerate me. I don't know. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and AroundTheField.net. Thanks, as always, to Jeff Ward for creating our uh, excellent show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earle and to the many other listeners who have created the uh, show-opening disclaimer clips that we use at the beginning of our episodes. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with us all at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, were you going to say something? Wiki. Uh, yeah. Live long. Go fly. Because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. If you don't believe that, just check Jeb, Jack, and me. That's right. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. AMFFN. Mm-hmm.